Chapter 40 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 40 When restored to consciousness, Consuelo saw that she was seated upon a purple carpet which covered the white marble steps of an elegant Corinthian peristyle. Two masks, in whom, by the color of their cloaks, she recognized Liverani and him whom she rightly thought must be Marcus, supported her in their arms and reanimated her by their attentions. About forty other persons, cloaked and masked, the same whom she had seen around the similitude of the bier of Jesus, were ranged in two lines along the steps, and sang in chorus a solemn hymn in an unknown language, while they waved crowns of roses, palms, and branches of flowers. The columns were ornamented with garlands, which crossed each other in festoons like a triumphal arch before the closed door of the temple and above Consuelo. The moon, brilliant at the zenith, in all her splendor, alone illumined that white facade. And outside, all about this sanctuary, ancient yews, cypresses, and pines formed an impenetrable thicket, similar to a sacred grove, under which murmured a mysterious stream like glancing silver. My sister, said Marcus, aiding Consuelo to rise, you have passed victorious through all your trials. Do not blush at having suffered and failed physically under the weight of sorrow. Your generous heart was broken with indignation and pity before the palpable testimonials of the crimes and woes of humanity. If you had arrived here erect and without assistance, we should have felt less respect for you than when bringing you dying and overcome." You have seen the crypts of a seigneurial chateau, not of a particular one, celebrated above all for the crimes of which it was the theater, but similar to all those the ruins of which cover a large portion of Europe. Frightful remains of the vast network by the help of which, for so many centuries, the feudal power enveloped the civilized world and oppressed men with the crime of its barbarous dominion and with the horror of civil war. Those hideous abodes, those savage fortresses, have necessarily served as a den for all the crimes which humanity was obliged to see accomplished before arriving at the notion of the truth. Through the wars of religion, through the labor of the emancipating sex, and through the martyrdom of the elect among men. Travel over Germany, France, Italy, England, Spain, the Slavonic countries. You will not pass through a valley. You will not climb a mountain without perceiving above you the imposing ruins of some terrible chateau, or at least without discovering at your feet in the grass the vestige of some fortification. They are the bloody traces of the right of conquest, exercised by the patrician caste upon the enslaved castes. And if you explore all those ruins, if you turn up the soil which has devoured them 
and which incessantly labors to make them disappear, you will find, in all, the vestiges of what you have just seen here, a jail, a cellar for the oversurplus of dead bodies, narrow and fetid cells for prisoners of importance, a corner in which to assassinate without noise, and at the summit of some tower or in the depth of some subterranean, a wooden horse for rebellious serfs and refractory soldiers, a gibbet for deserters, seething kettles for heretics. How many have perished in boiling pitch? How many have disappeared under the waves? How many have been buried alive in mines? Ah, if the walls of the chateaus, if the waters of the lakes and rivers, if the caves of the rocks could speak and relate all the iniquity they have witnessed and concealed. The number is too great for history to register the smallest part. But it was not the Lord's alone. It was not the patrician race exclusively that reddened the earth with so much innocent blood. The kings, the princes and the priests, the thrones and the church, these were the great sources of iniquity. These were the living forces of destruction. An austere care, a gloomy but strong idea, has collected in one of the halls of our old manor house a portion of the instruments of torture invented by the hatred of the strong against the weak. A description of them would not be credited. The eye can hardly comprehend them. The thought refuses to admit their possibility. And yet they have been used for centuries, those hideous machines, in royal chateaus as well as in the citadels of little princes, but especially in the dungeons of the holy office. What do I say? They are still used there, though more rarely. The Inquisition still exists, still tortures, and in France, the most civilized of all countries, there are provincial parliaments that still burn pretended sorcerers. Moreover, is tyranny yet overthrown? Do kings and princes no longer ravage the earth? Does not war carry desolation into wealthy cities, as well as into the hut of the poor man, at the smallest caprice of the smallest sovereign? Does not servitude still prevail in half of Europe? Are not the troops still subjected almost everywhere to the discipline of the lash and of the stick? Are not the finest and bravest soldiers in the world, the Prussians, drilled like beasts by blows of rod and of the cane? Are not the Negroes more badly treated in America than the dogs and horses? If the fortresses of the old barons are dismantled and converted into inoffensive dwellings, do not those of the kings still stand? Do they not serve as prisons for the innocent more frequently than for the guilty? And you, my sister, you the most gentle and the most noble of women, have you not been a captive at Spandau? We knew you to be generous. We could depend upon your spirit of justice and of charity. But seeing you destined, like a portion of those here, to return into the world, to frequent courts, to approach the persons of sovereigns, to be, you especially, the object of their temptations. It was our duty to put you on your guard against the intoxications of that life of brilliancy and dangers. 
It was our duty not to spare you even the most terrible teachings. We have spoken to your mind by the solitude to which we condemned you and by the books which we placed in your hands. We have spoken to your heart by paternal words and by exhortations alternately severe and tender. We have spoken to your eyes by trials more painful and of a deeper meaning than those of the ancient mysteries. Now, if you persist in receiving the initiation, you can present yourself without fear before those incorruptible but paternal judges whom you already know and who await you here in order to crown you or to restore to you the freedom of leaving us forever. Speaking thus, Marcus, raising his arm, designated to consuel at the door of the temple above which the three sacramental words, liberty, equality, fraternity, had just been enkindled in letters of fire. Consuelo, physically weakened and broken, no longer lived but in spirit. She had not been able to listen, standing, to Marcus's discourse. Compelled to seat herself upon the pedestal of a column, she reclined against Liverani, but without seeing him, without thinking of him. Still, she had not lost one of the initiator's words. Pale as a specter, her eyes fixed and her voice extinct, she had not the bewildered look which follows a nervous crisis. A concentrated exultation filled her chest, the weak breathing of which was no longer perceptible to Liverani. Her black eyes, which fatigue and suffering had somewhat sunk in their sockets, glowed with a dark fire. A slight fold of her brow indicated an unshakable resolution, the first of her life. Her beauty at this moment excited the fear of those present who had before seen her invariably gentle and benevolent. Liverani trembled like the leaf of the jessamine which the breeze of the night gently waved upon the brow of his beloved. She rose with more strength than he had expected, but immediately her knees failed her, and in ascending the steps she allowed herself to be almost carried by him while the clasp of those arms which had so much agitated her, the proximity of that heart which had so inflamed her own, did not distract her for a moment from her internal agitation. He placed between his hand and that of Consuelo the cross of silver, that talisman which gave him a right over her and which served him as a mark of recognition. Consuelo did not appear to recognize either the gauge or the hand which presented it. Her own was contracted by suffering. It was a mechanical pressure, as when one seizes a branch to hold by on the brink of an abyss. But the blood of the heart did not reach that frozen hand. Marcus, said Liverani in a low voice, as the former passed them to knock at the door of the temple, do not leave us. The trial has been too severe. I am afraid. She loves you, replied Marcus. Yes, but perhaps she will die, returned Liverani, shuddering. Marcus knocked thrice upon the door, which opened and again closed as soon as he had entered with Consuelo and Liverani. The other brothers remained under the peristyle, awaiting their admittance to the ceremony of initiation 
For between that initiation and the last trials, there was always a secret interview between the invisible chiefs and the candidate. The interior of the kiosk, in form of a temple, which was used for these initiations at the Chateau or Blanc, was magnificently ornamented and decorated between each column with the statues of the greatest friends of humanity. That of Jesus the Christ was there placed in the middle of the amphitheater, between those of Pythagoras and Plato. Apollonius of Thyana was by the side of St. John, Avalard beside St. Bernard, John Huss and Jerome of Prague beside St. Catherine and Joan of Arc. But Consuelo did not stop to look at external objects. Entirely concentrated within herself, she again saw without surprise and without emotion those same judges who had probed her heart so deeply. She no longer felt in the least troubled by the presence of these men, whoever they might be, and she awaited their sentence with great apparent calmness. Brother Initiator said to Marcus, the eighth personage, who, seated below the judges, always spoke for them. Whom do you bring us? What is her name? Consuelo Porporina, replied Marcus. That is not what was asked of you, my brother, returned Consuelo. Do you not see that I present myself here in a bridal dress and not in widow's weeds? Announce the Countess Albert de Rudelstadt. My daughter, said the brother orator, I speak to you in the name of the council. You no longer bear the name that you invoke. Your marriage with the Count of Rudolstadt is dissolved. By what right? And in virtue of what authority? demanded Consuelo in a quick, strong voice, as if in a fever. I recognize no theocratic power. You have yourselves taught me to recognize in you no other rights over me than those which I myself have freely given you, and to submit only to a paternal authority. Yours would not be such if it were to dissolve my marriage without my husband's consent and my own. That right neither he nor I have conferred on you. You are mistaken, my daughter. Albert has given us the right to dispose of his lot and yours, and you have yourself also given us that right by opening to us your heart and confessing to us your love for another. I have confessed nothing to you, replied Consuelo, and I deny the avowal you wish to force from me. Introduce this sibyl, said the orator to Marcus, a woman of tall stature, dressed entirely in white, and with her face concealed by her veil, entered and seated herself in the middle of the half-circle formed by the judges. By a nervous trembling, Consuelo easily recognized Wanda. Speak, priestess of truth, said the orator. Speak, interpretess and revealer of the most hidden secrets, of the most delicate impulses of the heart. Is this woman the wife of Albert de Rudelstadt? She is his faithful and respectable wife, replied Wanda. But at this moment, it is your duty to pronounce her divorce. You see well by whom she is conducted here. You see well that the one of our children whose hand she holds is the man whom she loves and to whom she ought to belong, in virtue of the imprescriptible right of love, in marriage. Consuela turned with surprise towards Liberani, 
and looked at her own hand, which was numb and as if dead in his. She seemed to be under the influence of a dream and to make an effort to awaken herself. She freed herself at last with energy from that clasp, and looking at the hollow of her hand, she saw there the impress of her mother's cross. This is then the man whom I have loved, said she with the melancholy smile of a holy ingenuousness. Well, yes, I have loved him tenderly, madly, but it was a dream. I thought that Albert was no more, and you told me that this one deserved my esteem and my confidence. Then I again saw Albert. I thought I understood from his language that he did not wish to be my husband, and I did not guard myself from loving this unknown, whose letters and attentions intoxicated me with a foolish attraction. But I have been told that Albert loves me still, and that he renounces me from virtue and generosity. But why, then, is Albert persuaded that I will remain inferior to him in devotedness? What criminal act have I committed hitherto, that I should be thought capable of breaking his heart by accepting a selfish happiness? No, I will never stain myself with such a crime. If Albert considers me unworthy of him, because I have another love than his in my heart, if he feels a scruple about destroying that love, and does not desire to inspire me with a greater, I will submit to his decision. I will accept the sentence of that divorce, against which, nevertheless, my heart and my conscience revolt. But I will be neither the wife nor the lover of the other. Farewell, Liverani, or whoever you may be, to whom I entrusted my mother's cross in a day of effusion for which I feel neither shame nor remorse." Restore to me that pledge, in order that there may no longer be between us anything else than the remembrance of a reciprocal esteem and the feeling of a duty accomplished without bitterness and without effort. We recognize no such morality, as you know, returned the Sibyl. We do not accept such sacrifices. We wish to inaugurate and to sanctify love lost and profaned in the world the holy and voluntary union of two beings equally attached. We have over our children the right of correcting the conscience, of remitting faults, of assorting sympathies, of breaking the bonds of ancient society. You therefore have not that of disposing of your being in sacrifice. You cannot stifle love in your bosom and deny the truth of your confession unless we give you permission so to do. Why do you speak to me of liberty? Why do you speak to me of love and of happiness? cried Consuelo, making a step towards the judges with a burst of enthusiasm and the radiance of a sublime expression. Have you not made me pass through trials which ought to leave an eternal paleness on my brow and an invincible austerity in my soul? How insensible and cowardly you must consider me, if you judge me still capable of dreaming and seeking for personal satisfaction after what I have seen, after what I have comprehended, after what I know henceforth respecting the history of men and my duties in this world. No, no, no more love, no more marriage, no more liberty, no more happiness, no more glory, no more art, nothing more for me. 
if I must cause suffering to the least among my kind. And is it not proved that every joy in the world of this day is purchased at the cost of the joy of some other? Is there not something better to be done than to satisfy oneself? Does not Albert think thus, and have not I the right to think like him? Does he not hope to find in his very sacrifice the strength to labor for humanity with more ardor and intelligence than ever? Let me be as great as Albert. Let me fly from the deceitful and criminal illusion of happiness. Give me work, fatigue, sorrow, enthusiasm. I can no longer conceive of joy but in suffering. I have the thirst of martyrdom since you have imprudently shown to me the trophies of execution. Oh, shame to those who have understood duty and who care still to share happiness or rest upon the earth. Of what consequence are we? Of what consequence am I? Oh, Liverani, if you love me with love after having gone through the trials which have led me here, you are insensate. You are only a child, unworthy of the name of man, unworthy assuredly that I should sacrifice to you Albert's heroic affection. And you, Albert, if you are here, if you listen to me, you ought at least not to refuse to call me your sister, to extend to me your hand and assist me to walk in the rough path which leads you to God. Consuelo's enthusiasm was carried to its highest pitch. Words were not sufficient to express it. A sort of dizziness seized upon her, and as it happened to the pythonesses in the paroxysm of their divine crises, that they gave themselves up to cries and strange furies, so she was led to manifest the emotion with which she overflowed by the expression that was most natural to her. She began to sing in a brilliant voice and with a transport at least equal to that she had experienced when singing. The same air at Venice, in public for the first time of her life and in presence of Marcello and Porpora. Icelli immensi Narano, del grande idio la gloria. This song came to her lips because it is perhaps the most artless and the most striking expression that music has ever given to religious enthusiasm. But Consuelo had not the calmness necessary to restrain and to direct her voice. After these two lines, the intonation became a sob in her chest. She burst into tears and fell upon her knees. The Invisibles, electrified by her fervor, had risen simultaneously as if to hear standing in the attitude of respect that song of the inspired one. But seeing her sink under her emotion, they all descended from the enclosure and approached her, while Wanda, seizing her in her arms and throwing her into those of Liberani, cried to her, Well, look at him then and know that God grants to you the power of reconciling love and virtue, happiness and duty. Consuelo, deaf for an instant, and as if entranced in another world, at last looked at Liverani, whose mask Marcus had just torn off. She uttered a piercing cry and almost expired on his bosom as she recognized Albert. Albert and Liverani were the same man, End of chapter 40